Well, we've been talking about uh, what the Bible says about human beings. Uh, you could call this uh, <clears throat> just, 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 you know, for free. Uh, this is an exercise of systematic theology. <coughs> systematic theology is a type of theology where we figure out what the Bible says about something, some given subject. So, uh, in uh, systematic theology, you'll see if you've got a big, it's a big fat book, systematic theology, you'll see it's organized by subjects. So, it'll have the theology of God, the theology of man, the theology of sin, the theology of salvation. That, that's how it's organized. <clears throat> and, in fact, what I've been doing with the men's breakfast is going through a sort of a systematic theology, and now we're on the subject of humans, before we were on the subject of God. Uh, and uh, when we're dealing with Jesus, of course, uh, we're dealing with God and humans. Um, and so in the, study, in the theology of God, when we study Jesus, we talk about Jesus as the Son of God, Jesus as full deity, um, and here we're going to begin today to talk about Jesus as the uh, perfect man. Uh, humanity is perfected in Christ. I had an a experience when I was taking a seminary class uh, that was, for me, sort of eye-opening. It was one of those things where uh, the professor says something and you go, oh, Right. I, oh, yeah, of course. And it seemed, after I had heard it once, it seemed incredibly obvious, but also incredibly important. And at the same time, for whatever reason, I hadn't really noticed it before. And what he said was, uh, <clears throat> if you want to know uh, what a human being is, the one human being who exemplifies that the best is Jesus. Uh, and so he is a perfect human. So one way I can say this is, he's more human than I am. And for me, that was an extremely useful thing to observe. He's like a human the way humans are intended to be, created to be. And I'm like a human that has broken. So, in, in my humanity is not really completely realized, and his is. So, uh, that's kind of what we're going to talk about. We're going to use as our outline, basically, the first three verses of the book of Hebrews. Uh, and uh, you're invited to look at that if you have a Bible with you. Um, One of the uh, one of the things I would uh, notice is that there are passages in the Bible that we sometimes might use to prove the deity of Christ, even though those passages are really intended to reveal the humanity of Christ. So, for example, uh, the text. Uh, 
in Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God. So we might, uh, we might say, so see that? He's, he's God. Even the text we're going to look at in Hebrews 1, let me just read it. It's probably familiar. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And uh, there we're going to see seven things about Jesus in that text. And it's going to take us several breakfasts to cover it. We're going to talk about two of them today. <clears throat> and so we, this is a proof text for the deity of Christ. But this is also a proof text for the humanity of Christ. And uh, its focus, uh, for our sake, is really more about his humanity than about his deity. Uh, or in another case, John 1.14, the Word, and we understand from the context, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. Uh, and here we have, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John chapter 1 is a <clears throat> proof text that we would use to talk about the deity of Christ. Yet here, the emphasis is on the fact that he became flesh and dwelt among us. He was one of us. Uh, and of course... The, this uh, concept of what we call the hypostatic union, the full deity and the full humanity of Jesus, uh, well, that's uh, one of the critical doctrines of all Orthodox Christianity. Uh, so, <clears throat> so what we have in Christ is fully God and fully man, not some sort of hybrid of God and man, and uh, not uh, reducing either his deity or his humanity, uh, but two natures, not some third God-man nature, but two natures uh, together in one person. Well, this is a little like explaining the Trinity, isn't it? where we have three persons in one being. And here we have one person with two natures. Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, and that's, what, that's the assertion of all Orthodox Christianity. In this text, which I just read, in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir, of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of God's nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand 
of the majesty on high. So we're going to see uh, seven things. We're going to see in Jesus' perfect likeness, that's his sonship, is the fact that he's the son, the only begotten of God. We're going to see in Christ the perfect image. That's his uh, uh, radiance of God's glory. We're going to see in Christ the agent of the Father, the exact representation of his nature uh, through whom he made the world. (laughs) Uh, We're going to see that he's the heir of all things. Everything begins and ends in Christ. And we're going to see that he's the sustainer. So he begins, he ends, and he carries the story from the beginning to the end. That's what it means to be a sustainer. It's literally like the word for carry. Uh, Upholds the universe by the word of his power. Uh, He's the reconciler. He made purification for sins. And he's the prince. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So we're going to take a look in more detail about each of those things. And today we're going to talk about uh, his perfection in likeness and his perfection in image. Now, I think those two categories, we're talking about a human being, uh, those two categories, the other things might be fit into one or both of those categories, but we'll, we'll see that as we go along. Now, I, just to, as a reminder, I want to talk about what we mean when we say likeness as opposed to image. This goes back to Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And the word likeness emphasizes our dependent relationship to God, a human being, Adam, was to be the son of God, to bear his likeness. And when we talk about image, it's about our relation from that out into the created world, to each other, or in the case of, uh, well, in, in God's commandment in Genesis 1, you know, fill the earth and subdue it. It's about our relationship to creation, our representation of God in the world. We're bearing his image. So likeness is about our relation to God and image is about our relation to one another and to creation in which we represent God. And this is how God intended in creation of humanity to spread his glory around the world by spreading humanity around the world. Fill the earth, subdue it. And uh, so, when we talk about likeness, we're talking about our vertical relationship. And when we talk about image, we're talking about our horizontal relationships. You should notice that when God talks about creating man in, in his image according to his likeness, This is inherently relational. And it is a reflection of the relational nature of God himself. Three persons, one being. In in God himself, there's a fellowship of persons. And in the creation of man, that fellowship is getting 
materialized, that makes a certain sense. And we are to be included in that fellowship and extended in the world. So, to be fully human, then, means to be wholly directed toward God. This is the first commandment. So, Jesus, what's the most important commandment? Thou shalt love the Lord your God, heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything about you is to be focused in relation to God, in a a relationship of intimate fellowship, love. That's likeness. The second commandment is like it. You shall love your neighbor like you love yourself. (laughs) I think before the fall, you didn't need the like you love yourself bit. Adam didn't have to be told, love Eve like you love yourself, until after things came apart. Now, I take care of myself. Nobody has to worry about how well I'm loving myself. Well, except we get bad at it. Uh, But the point is, look, you know how you love when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't mean love yourself first, and once you've got that down, love your neighbor. That is not what that means. What it means is, you see how you take care of yourself? Take care of the people around you that way too. It's the golden rule. Do unto others as you would be done unto. See how you take care of yourself? Take care of other people that way. Love your neighbor as yourself. So, this is image bearing. I love God. I have, I'm holy oriented toward God in a loving relationship and I'm wholly orientated oriented to the people around me in a loving relationship. These are the two commandments, likeness, image. And then the third thing is to carry out God's agenda in creation. This is Genesis 1.28. You remember what that says, right? Yes. What does it say, Malcolm? Exactly what you're thinking. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I don't remember what it says. I got to read it. No. God blessed them, and God said to them, "Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, every living thing that moves on the earth." So here we're. Like God's co-regents, we use this word, co-regents. It means like God's representative prince over the created order on the earth. And so we're carrying out his agenda. And when we're fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, what are we filling it with? The image of God, which we have because we walk in the likeness of God. We walk in fellowship with God, and so we walk in correct relation to to the world around us, including each other. So, that's a lesson in what it means to be a human being, at least in the original intention. Uh, And, of course, we've spent the last couple of weeks learning about what broke when Adam rejected God. And what broke was, because he lacked fellowship with God, now we would call him dead. 
And immediately, as soon as that Adam and Eve eat the fruit, disobey God, reject God's fellowship, their fellowship with each other immediately broke. Suddenly, they know, they realize, oh, we're naked here, we've got to put some clothes on. The, the, the intimacy, the trust that was inherent when they were walking with God now is broken down. This is the Christian account of human conflict. We're, we have curved in on ourselves so that I revolve around me and I want the world to revolve around me as well. This is what we call dead. So, let's talk about Jesus. In Jesus we see the Son who restores our sonship. He is perfect in likeness. And what we're going to see is that Jesus, in his incarnation, in his human life, Jesus lives the way Adam should have lived. This is very important. This, this, this is especially visible, say, in the Gospel according to Matthew, if you want to look. But Jesus lives as a man, not as God, though he is God. He lives his human life as a human. He does what Adam should have done, and he does it the way Adam could have done it. So what is that way? Well, he lived in perfect, faithful dependence on the Father. This is especially visible in the book of John, if you want to look. What you see in the book of John is Jesus walking by faith in God. He has a full-on likeness. He is the Son, the only begotten of God. He is in perfect fellowship with God the Father. And because of that, he acts in perfect relation to everything else. His, his love is perfect love. His love for you and me, which is kind of ultimately expressed in the, in the work of the cross, is a perfect reflection of the love of the Father. Now, if you read through the book of John, you will see this over and over and over and over. He says, I always do only what I see the Father doing. I only can say what he says. And so I just wanted to look at a couple of examples of this. In John chapter 3, for example. And I especially like the one in chapter 3, <clears throat> verse 34, because in this verse, it explains the relationship. How? How? How does Jesus operate in perfect faith toward the Father and therefore perfect faithfulness to him in relation to everyone else? Here's how. This is uh, John 3. Okay, I'm going to start with verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. 
He who is of the earth belongs to the earth, speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony, wait a second, he just said no one read. Okay, so this is a case where, as a general rule, nobody listens, but there are a few who listen. Okay? There was, this is like what he said in chapter 1. He came to his own, and his own received him not, but as many as received him. So he's saying, look, as a general rule, his people did not accept him uh, for who he really was, but some did. Anyway, sorry, I got distracted by that. Uh, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives, that is, God gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So what we're noticing here is the third person of the Trinity is involved in all of this. You see, Jesus experienced the fullness of the Spirit at all times and in complete order. So we have the commandment in Ephesians to us, be filled with the Spirit. Jesus was always obedient to that commandment. He, would, he had the Spirit without measure. The Father gave him the Spirit without measure. The Spirit generates faith toward God and faithfulness in the, toward God in the horizontal relationship. So Jesus is the Adam Adam failed to be. He lived the perfect faithful dependence. He did what Adam could have done the way Adam could have done it. Adam disowned God as father, so he alienated the human race from God. You can see this. There's a very interesting clue in Genesis chapter 5. Get a load of this now. This is pretty cool. So, in Genesis, you have the book of generations. There's one of the ways you can see the outline of the book of Genesis is it'll talk about these are the generations. And the first chapter is sort of the generations of God. And when we get to chapter 5, this is, this is what you read. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them. And he blessed them and named them man when they were created. Okay? So this is like a review. <clears throat> when Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness. After his image. And named him Seth. Now, we could just sort of gloss over that, but that I think there's an intended, an intentional contrast 
Now, we don't want to go so far as to say, well, therefore, after Adam and Eve sinned, human beings are no longer created in the image of God. That's not the case. The scripture is quite clear on that. It goes on to say that. It says that in the story of Noah, because it, ju- it says that it, it, it justifies the use of capital punishment in the crime of murder because human beings are made in the image of God. In the book of James, it says, with the same mouth you bless God and you curse the person who's made in the image of God. What's wrong with you? Uh, so we can't say human beings after Adam are not made in the image of God, but we can say they're also made in the image of Adam, in the likeness of Adam. And so we all reflect the we all reflect the disease of sin that we got from Adam. We, anyway, so we've been alienated from God in Adam. In Luke chapter 3. I think I was supposed to read this first, but I don't do that. Oh, this is the end of the the genealogy. Jesus is the son of 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 it goes all the way to the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Wait, I thought Jesus was the son of God, the only begotten. Well, this is a reflection of the fact that Adam was created to be the son of God, the human image bearing, living in the likeness of God, but it got broken. That's why I was supposed to read this first, and then the Genesis thing. This is how it was intended. And now we're talking about Jesus. And when we say Jesus, son of Adam, son of God, we're talking about the fact that Jesus is man and God. Jesus is the perfect son. He's the son Adam wasn't. In the incarnation, the eternal son becomes the human son, the second Adam, the last Adam. So Jesus lives by faith, by trust. And so he lives in unity, in union with the Father, in fellowship with God. And that is his source of power and direction in the world. And so he, uh, when he acts, he is a display of God's nature. Uh, he bring, he's uh, glorifying God. <clears throat> now, I want you to just notice, we're talking about a man. And what I just gave you is an outline of the Christian way of life. And it must progress in this order. Our our correct, righteous, loving fellowship with the world and the people around us depends on our walking by faith in God, in Christ, by the Spirit. So it starts with faith, which is 
which results in union, fellowship, we're united with Christ. And so we are indwelled by the Spirit and empowered and directed to live in the righteousness we have in Christ. And so we take action that is a display of God's righteousness, not mine. This is why Paul says, I want to be found in him not having a righteousness of my own, but that which is in Christ through faith. So I, through faith, the Spirit works in me to work in the world according to the righteousness which I possess, not from myself, but from him. This is very important. This is how Jesus did it. He relies on the Father, and he has the power from the Spirit to act in the world. Uh, you can see this reflected in Genesis 1, 27 to 31, which we read a lot, so we'll read it again. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them, and God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in it is fruit, you shall have them for food. Who's the provider? To every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food and it. So God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. There was evening, there was morning, the sixth day. So the, the correct relationship of everything is to start in relation to God and to move out from there. The first commandment is love the Lord your God. The second commandment is love your neighbor. Uh, In the atonement, the Son of God reconciles us to God. We could call this adoption. This is John 1.12. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Uh, Sorry, that's not 12. But as many as received him, to them he gave the power or the right to be called children of God. In Galatians 4 and Romans 8, we have the Spirit of God indwelling the believer, and that it is the Spirit that cries out in us, Abba, Father. In uh, Ephesians 1, 5, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Uh, In Hebrews 2, I love this passage. Hebrews 2, verse 10, and, oops, sorry. For it was fitting 
that he, that we're speaking of Christ here, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. I read more than I wanted to there, but uh, it is fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So Jesus' suffering brings sons to glory. First um, John chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, behold what manner of love is this. You know this one, right? I quote this every Sunday. First John 3, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason the world doesn't know us is that it didn't know Him. <coughs> John chapter 17, in the, what we call the high priestly prayer of Jesus, at the end of the Lord's, well, the Last Supper, this prayer where he says that he prays that the disciples and everyone who would believe as a result of their lives, he prays that we would be one and that we would be one with God like he is one with God. This is a prayer for the restoration of likeness. Jesus restores our sonship. So, this means in the Christian life, even now, even though these things are yet to be fully realized, even now the opportunity exists by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit for us to walk in faith and live in righteousness. It's it's the opportunity of the Christian life. Now, in the present age, we live in a battle. That's what we're going to talk about tomorrow. We live in a battle between the spirit and the flesh. Between the likeness restored son of God me and the me me. The me belong to myself me. Do what I want me. Have my way world revolves around me, ingrown soul, me. And this is a battle in our lives in the present age. But in the end, the Lord is going to win this war. Sorry, we'll talk about wars tomorrow. The second thing we want to notice is Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, his perfect image. It says in this text in Hebrews, in these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. Jesus is the speech of God. 
Jesus is the revelation of God. John 1, 18 here says, no one has ever seen God. You might read that statement and you think, well, did John not know his Old Testament? I mean, people are seeing God all the time. What's going on there? Well, he explains, no one has ever seen God. The Son has seen God and the Son reveals God. So when we think about, this is why I said last time, I think, sometime anyway, wherever we were talking about the Trinity, uh, this is why I say, I think, in all those Old Testament appearances of God, it's the Son of God who's appearing. The Son of God makes God visible to the rest of us. Uh, and so in Jesus, it's the Son of God as a man now, revealing. He is the speech of God. Uh, okay, we're, I'm not going to look up all those verses. You can, you can look those up. One of, which, one of them is Hebrews 1, which we're on here. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his Son. Now, to me, one of the interesting things here is Maybe we call it ironic, but it's the glory of veiled glory. Jesus behaves in a way, and in Jesus, God behaves in a way that you could only call heroic. So we read in Philippians chapter 2, for example, that he emptied himself and became one of us, taking on the appearance of a man. Coming a man. That seems like a step down. But what we see in the whole story of that passage in Philippians is he stepped down to be one of us, and then finding himself one of us, he stepped down. And he kept stepping down. He kept stepping down to the point of death, even the death on the cross. And then, in response to that, it seems, God highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name. So you see, there's a heroic journey in Christ. And he, he's going down to go up. And so he is uh, revealed as... A sort of, this, we see the glory of death in his case. It's very interesting if you read this text in John chapter 12. Verse 23. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What's he talking about? What's he talking about? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In that same high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, at the beginning, he says, Father, glorify the Son. What's he talking about? Well, if you study the book of John and you look for this word glorify, the hour has come, especially if you focus on that hour. 
Jesus says, my hour is my hour has not come, my hour has not come, my hour has not come, my hour has not come. And then when we get here, he says that for the first time, the hour has come. That's what I'm talking about. Well, he tells us right here. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life, his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. He's talking about his death. And he's saying, he's, when he says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, who's he talking about? Himself. He's not going to remain alone. He's bringing many sons to glory. <laughs> And this is glorious. There's a glory in the God of all things veiling his glory for the sake of his beloved. There's a great act of heroism. It's uh, the great act of heroism. Uh, so the, there's a perfect humility in God. How bizarre. God himself, the great creator of all things, above all things, transcendent above all things, is humble. Uh-huh. And his humility is the greatest of all humility. It is the greatest exhibit of humility possible. You see, God, in the triune <clears throat> fellowship, God is oriented toward the other in a, in a glorious way. And so in the fellowship of God, there's a self-sacrificing love already. And that is exhibited with perfection in the life of the man, Jesus. How does he do it? Let's think about that prayer. That prayer. Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass. He knows there's no other way. He's sweating blood from the stress. How does that man resist the temptation to quit? His resistance to temptation is much harder than any resistance I've ever given. Because he took it all the way. Even when it got him killed. In the most horrible way. Even when it meant the thing he's really afraid of there in the garden. That time of broken fellowship. That, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me moment. That's the thing he's really stressed about. He's, God is going to experience death in a man. You can't even, this will just make your head explode. And that is the extent to which he resisted. You know why resisting temptation isn't that hard for us? Because we give into it. 
Some people think, well, Jesus was God, of course he was a, he couldn't possibly sin, and it's true, he couldn't possibly sin. But him resisting sin was way harder than me resisting sin. <laughs> because he resisted sin all the way to that moment. I mean, if you just barely look like you're gonna hurt me, I'll probably give in. Anyway. So we see his perfected humility. This is a glory to God. Now, here's something I want to conclude with, and that is what we might notice is because he is the exact, the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his nature, because no one has seen God at any time, but the Son of God reveals him. Because that's true, all our theology is Christology. If we want to know God, we know God in Christ. And really, if we want to understand anything, we understand it in the light of Christ, who's the creator of all, the agent of God in creation. The other thing we might notice is that the schoolyard of theology is Calvary. I mean, what a bizarre way for God to behave. How is it possible that God Almighty is humble? Wow. That is a surprise. In fact, it's such a surprise, Martin Luther said nobody would ever figure that out except for the Spirit operating. Nobody is going to look for God on a Roman cross, and yet that's the only place you can find him. The only place. That's where he actually is. We build temples and towers and magnificent religious idols and all these things of greatness. And it turns out the greatness is in the weakness, in the humility, in the cross. It's absolutely unexpected. And yet, because the Spirit works... We see him there. You can't find him anywhere else. And we are united to this eternal triune fellowship in association with him. <laughs> he is not ashamed to call me brother. I mean, come on. You've got to be kidding, right? He is not ashamed to call me brother. He... Uh, knows my weakness. He looked Peter straight in the eye and said, you're going to act like you don't even know me before morning. Peter, you pulling out your, you know, grabbing the guy's sword, trying to act all heroic, going around saying, you'll never let him get me. You're just acting like Satan when you do that. Peter, he's not ashamed of Peter. He comes back to Peter, you know, a few weeks, days later, and says, feed my sheep. You know you love me. Feed my sheep. One day, you're going to die kind of like I did. But there's a greatness in that. So, uh, 
our school for what it means to really be a full-on man, a human being, is Jesus. And we can learn from seeing Adam, how he failed, and how Jesus succeeded in the very things Adam failed in. And what we can experience is the recovery from that failure in that success. God said, the Spirit, the, the Scripture says that the very righteousness of Christ, God credits to us on the basis of the work of the cross. So I'm now secure, safe in the hand of God. Can't be lost. And it's in that fellowship that I have in him, walking in that day by day, that I become empowered to really love the people around me. It's beyond fantastic. So we should pray for one another that we walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. That we take advantage of this crazy opportunity we have in Christ. Father, thanks for uh, bringing us together today. Thank you for this love. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, for the incarnation, for the sacrifice, for even now his intercession on our behalf. Father, we pray that you would fill us with the Spirit, enable us to walk by faith, walk in this union that we have with our Savior. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Any questions, comments? Get the money from the Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I may have misunderstood it, but you said that Adam was Jesus before the separation. No, no. Uh, he took the part of Jesus. What was, what was no, that? It's really the other way around. Adam is not Jesus. Adam is Adam. He was a man created. But Adam, Jesus does what Adam failed to do. So in that sense, we call Jesus the second Adam. They're not the same person at all. But if Adam had not sinned, would there have been a reason for Jesus to come? No. Well, Jesus would have been here already. If you want to ask the question, who's walking in the garden with Adam? It's the Son of God. I mean, he's not hes not the man Jesus at that moment. He hasn't been incarnated. But, uh, <clears throat> but he, it's the Son of God. It's uh, so, Adam, uh, if Adam had not failed, then I don't know the reason for the incarnation. But Adam's failure is in the plan of God. Absolutely. It's not an accident. Okay? It didn't, they, when Adam failed, God didn't go, oh. it was you know, right on schedule. So... Uh, it's part of the plan of the revelation of the glory of God in humanity is 
the incarnation of the Son of God from the beginning. Now you might ask, how do I know that? Because the scripture just says it quite plainly. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. So there's a intention. You know, why does God allow the Satans and the other bad angels to go bad? Well, for this reason. He's God's tell in all history, God is the storyteller. We're going to see even that even more when we talk about Jesus being the sustainer of the universe, the carrier of the story, the, that the whole thing is a story told by God. So <clears throat> there's a certain respect in which we, we, we have to say, well, God is not surprised by the sinfulness of humanity, by the fall into sin. There's stuff we're going to have a hard time with about that. You know, how does a good God allow evil at all? And it's not unlike the question, why does anything exist other than God? If God's perfectly content in himself, why is there anything else? Well, it's a related question. Sorry, we're wandering around your question. But no, Adam is not Jesus. Jesus is the second Adam, but we're not, we don't mean he's like a reincarnation of Adam. We mean he's, uh, he's the man who gets right what Adam got wrong. Then I noticed in the Old Testament that as a part in that, when Moses goes up to the mountain to, to take dictation, I'd say, mm-hmm. and God uh, says, you cannot see me, but God presented himself, the back of himself. Right. Uh, he was on a crevice, I think. And mm-hmm. so what I'm reading now is it really was not God the man, but Jesus before he was born into... Well, it wasn't God the Father, yeah. I'd say, but God the Son before he was incarnate. He doesn't. He doesn't have the name Jesus until no. he's born. So I won't. I don't want to say Jesus, but I would say the Son. That's what. That's what I think. I think so too. The, and this, the scripture talks. Yeah, I think right there in Exodus, even it talks about Moses meeting face to face with God. So then the, that that creates more curiosity around this. The yes. experience you're talking about where God says, well, I'll show you my backside, but you, right. if I look, if, if you came right face to face with me, you'd die. Yeah. <laughs> the same in the burning bush, right? Like, uh, can't meet directly, but you also have these accounts in the Old Testament periodically. Abraham goes back to Abraham. He, the Lord came and visited him. Uh, Mm-hmm. Yeah, at various points along the way, uh, the Lord is like meeting with some guy. So, but on, well, in the case of Abraham, it's a guy. He shows up. He eats a meal. Abraham didn't know who he was. Well, until later. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. So who? You know, all I think we we take from John chapter one and we say, oh, that must have been the Son of God. 
if we want to, if we need to identify a person from the Trinity, that, well, that must be the Son. He's the, because we read in that text, it's the, no, no one's seen the Father, but the Son reveals him. So now we know. And I, it's not critical to the theology of that, those Old Testament texts to say, oh, that's the Son and not the Father. It's God in that instance. But, uh, this, I mean, this is how we, these things fit together. So, Doug, when it says that no one has seen God left to die, right? Mm-hmm. That's probably referring to the Father. So, my question would be in eternity, mm-hmm. in the eternal state, let's say, will we ever see God the Father, or will it always be God the Son, never the Father? <laughs> <laughs> well, your question reminds me of that question, the famous question at the Last Supper asked by the Apostle Philip, when Philip says to Jesus, just show us the Father. And do you remember Jesus' reply? What do you think I've been doing? Uh, You've seen me, you've seen him. So, uh, you know, this is a way of me avoiding I don't know. Yeah, I've heard. I've heard that it theorized that we'll never see God the Father face to face. We don't really need to. I don't think. And I guess, I guess, I kind of lean into that way of thinking, though I also don't think it's really that critical. No. But the where you know God is God with us in the end. You know, heaven comes down and resides on earth, and God is with His people. And I think, well, how is God with his people in the person of Jesus and the risen son? So, yeah. And there, you know, in those texts, this is in Revelation, it's not really specifying father, son, whatever. It's just God. In any case, we are wrapped up into the fellowship of father, son, and Holy Spirit. uh, And imperfectly in the end, and who we pray now to the Father. The Father is this provider, source, authority in God. We pray to the Father in the Son by the Spirit. This is an important thing we say when we say these things. This is why I don't particularly care for it when somebody closes their prayer with uh uh, they're saying Father, 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 and then they, at the end they say in your name. It gives me a little job. I'm like, ah, we don't pray to the Father in the name of the Father. We pray to the Father in the name of the Son. And we do this only by the work of the Spirit. So I want to, and I realize this is like way too picky. It's like, I rarely say this because it's like, Okay, you're just getting over the top picking now. But I want I want to teach myself to pray to the Father in the Son by the Spirit. But have you ever noticed people pray? Sometimes they pray to the Father. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they pray to Jesus. Mm-hmm. But I don't ever recall a person praying to the Holy to the Holy to Spirit. The Spirit. Though I, I think I have, I've heard people say "Spirit fill us," you know, and I, that's t- actually not—that's completely appropriate. 
the Spirit is as God as the Father. Jesus is as God as the Father. I mean, I can speak to any of the three persons. They're all together as just God. It's not a super big deal. And in Christ, (laughs) it's not so much about what I say as about who I am. If I'm a redeemed person, I am in Christ. And so I can speak to the Father at any time, or all the time, about anything and everything. Stupid, smart, bad, good. But it it seems the Holy Spirit in Scripture is really protected more than Jesus and God. Because I think somewhere in John, somewhere back, there was one unforgivable sin, and that had to do with the Holy Spirit. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm not sure we want to try to unwind this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit right now, but my own view is the way you blaspheme the Holy Spirit is you fail to believe in Jesus. Uh, and so, yeah, well, anyway, that's, I don't know what, I don't want to get too far into that, but this, if I'm a Christian, I am in Christ by the Spirit. And so I can pray to the Father. And Jesus and the Spirit are available, obviously, to me as well. So I can pray, Father, Jesus, Spirit, whatever. Uh, as I said, well, just by bringing this up, I'm making too much out of it. So uh, parents teach their kids to pray, Dear Jesus. I think that's okay if one day they get over it. In other words, Jesus is the accessibility of God, so it makes a lot of sense for a child to know God in Jesus. But at some point, I want to deal. I got to deal with the Trinitarian nature of this whole thing, and I'm recognizing that I'm. I'm being included in this eternal fellowship. That that's a good thing to see. Okay. Well, I think we're done. Thanks, guys. Great breakfast. Thanks everyone for bringing whatever you brought. It was good.